Welcome to the podcast this week. I'm Tom Hayes. And for those of you who have been listening for some time, you know we like to start with family updates. And we're usually updating with some good news, uh, whether it's Mimi's water polo, Annabelle's swimming. Uh, but this week we have some sad news. And uh, my biggest fan, my top listener was my father. John Hayes passed away. Uh, he was uh, just about 81 years old. He lived life on his terms. And he loved this podcast. He loved the family updates. And he specifically liked the Q&A section at the end of every week. And he would always send me a note how he listened and what he liked best and uh, what I could improve. And, uh, uh, but mostly what he liked best. And uh, this is a picture of him with Mimi and Annabelle. And this was at one of their birthday parties a few years ago. And most recently at Christmas at my house. Uh, at our house um, just a few weeks ago. And I'm recording this segment separately because I won't be able to do it in the normal recording without many, many, many takes. Um, but my dad grew up in you know College Point in Queens, New York. He was tough, he was stubborn. Uh, he didn't listen to doctors much, so uh, maybe we would have got another five or 10 year run out of him if he, uh, uh, had taken uh, medication, but, um, you know, he, he was, uh, he was, he was, uh, he was tough as nails, served the military uh, during Vietnam, um, you know, and he would always joke, my mom would say, oh, don't eat that. And he would say, better high blood pressure than no blood pressure. And that's how he lived. He, uh, he did what he wanted to do. And uh, I'll miss him greatly. My fondest memories with him were traveling the tri-state area, sometimes to as many as six games in one weekend for travel hockey and all those hours spent in the car together and uh, enjoying. He was a great dad. He made a lot of sacrifices to give me an education, to uh, raise me in, a, in uh, the best area he could and uh, to uh, uh, really do everything he was capable of doing. And uh, I love you, Pop. So with that said, on to the next episode. Welcome to episode 228. We're gonna kick it off with some market overview last night. I joined Sarah L. Caldi over on CNA, which is Channel News Asia. That's basically the BBC in Singapore. Uh, I wanna thank Sarah, Eugenia Lim, Marianne Inike, and Olivia Marzuki for having me on. We discussed uh, some short-term risks that we potentially see in terms of valuations, et cetera, and we went a little bit into the biotech industry. So listen in here. And for more insights, let's bring in Thomas Hayes, chairman and managing member at Great Tail Capital. Thanks for your time, Thomas. And it's really all about that inflation data Traders watching that closely, not a whole lot of movement on Wall Street. What are you looking out for and what are you expecting? Yeah, tomorrow's a big deal, Sarah. Thanks for having me. Uh, month on month, core PCE is expected to be up uh, four tenths of a percent and year on year 2.8 percent. We did get some strong inflation numbers earlier this month, so traders are on edge uh, Chris Waller was out today talking about potentially three cuts towards the back half of the year. But we are going to need to see inflation coming down to see that manifest. And the market really wants to see an easier Fed. So 
Uh, as we look forward to, to tomorrow, we may see some short-term bumpiness, but the trend is down. A lot of the seasonal bumpiness had been around owner's equivalent rent and sticky services inflation. That will work lower as productivity increases and 12-month leases lapse and we get, uh, get rid of the lagged effect on lease, leasing strength. Yeah, when we pull back a little bit, Thomas, you mentioned there that we did get uh, consumer prices, producer prices that were hotter than expected earlier and expectations are for some pickup in inflation. How vulnerable is the market to a potentially bumpy road ahead for inflation? Yeah, I, I think if you look at the non-seasonally adjusted numbers, they're telling a better story. So I think as we look out and we see some of the revisions and we see the numbers, the trend is going to persist towards the 2%, and it's going to persist very quickly, particularly as it relates to the owner's equivalent rent. Uh, but as it relates to the Fed, the economy has been uh, surprisingly strong, even though uh, GDP was revised down just a little bit today. Uh, we're still looking at uh, plus 3% in Q1, if you look at the Fed, Atlanta Fed GDP now. Uh, we just are finishing up an earnings season with over 75% of the companies reporting uh, over 3.2% earnings growth. When we came into this quarter, Sarah, uh, people were looking for just 1% earnings growth. So this is a big beat. Uh, and I think we're going to continue to see that strong economy on the back of uh, the strong consumer spending uh, and, the, and the productivity gains. Yeah, you mentioned a strong economy, positive earnings picture. We got a rally on Wall Street. A lot of positives here, and there are a lot of uh, market watchers saying that this is quite a Goldilocks period for the U.S. economy, where it's not too hot, not too cold. Amid all these positive factors, where are the risks, Thomas? And is it time to get a little bit worried? Yeah, you know, we've been publicly aggressively bullish since fall of uh, October, fall of 2022. And then again, last year when people got bullish in October 2023, we've been constructed the entire way through. And of late, in the last week or so, we did put a portfolio hedge on about 1% of equity capital uh, because we want to stay fully invested, but we do want to guard against some short-term volatility. In an election year, if you look back to 1928, this period, uh, late February through early April, can be some bumpiness after an early part of the year rally. The seasonality uh, provides for that. The other thing you have to keep in mind is while earnings have been great, we are trading at 20 and a half times forward earnings, which is pretty high with interest rates at these levels. So it wouldn't surprise us to get a little short-term pullback, but as it relates to election years, on average, uh, the, the S&P ends up 11.28%. So even if we do get a little weakness short term, we are very constructive for the year and we would use any weakness to add to positions uh, for the long term. And coming off that earnings season, given the rally and your outlook that you mentioned right there, do you expect a pullout or a broadening out of gains on Wall Street? And is there still room to run? I think that's a really good point. You know, we could see a scenario where what has led the market in the last uh, nine to 12 months, which has been a concentration of tech in the market cap weighted indices, starts to stall a little bit. We get a little breather against big tech. Uh, and we're starting to see in the last, uh, certainly towards the end of last year, and then a, uh, a new revival in February 
of more groups participating. You've seen healthcare, uh, which was not loved last year, start to take the reins. Industrials are performing. Even small caps this month started to perform quite well. So uh, you could see maybe some stalling in the indices, but under the surface, uh, the remainder of the companies start to outperform. And because their weights are smaller in the indices, you won't see it in the indices strength, but you could make a lot of money under the surface buying high quality companies that have been on sale for some time. Real quickly, Thomas, before we let you go, for those who have missed out on the rally so far, where are the opportunities? Well, I think you want to look at some, some of the higher quality companies that have been marked down. One of the ones that we loved, uh, which you just talked about, was Disney. That's had a pretty big move in the last uh, handful of weeks on good news. So maybe if on some weakness, you might want to pick up some Disney. Uh, the banks have started to move. I think on some weakness, you might pick up some banks. And uh, most importantly is biotech. Uh, we own a basket of biotech, just the ETF, which has basically been consolidating sideways for about a year and a half, and it's just now starting to take off. And the theme there is deals and drugs. Uh, risk appetite is coming back on. Big Pharma has record cash on their balance sheet. They are now buying these uh, undervalued biotech companies for innovation and for growth. We're going to see more M&A in the biotech space and more innovative drugs are getting approved, whether GLP-1s, whether stuff related to mm -hmm. cancer, Alzheimer's, et cetera. That theme will continue. And the final driver is the Fed starts to ease, which is always very good for risk on long duration assets like biotech. Yeah. In the meantime, we'll watch inflation figures when they become available. Thomas, thanks so much. For your insights today, Thomas Hayes, their chairman and managing member at Greytail Capital. And we're back. And then following that, I joined Asiya Namdar at CGTN America uh, with a little different tilt, a lot of talk about inflation, the general market. And she asked a strange question, which was, when's the last time you went shopping in a supermarket? To which I replied, when's the last time you played hockey in an ice rink? Uh, just kidding, uh, but uh, some things are better left thought versus said. Uh, but I enjoyed the interview. Uh, she asked some great questions and gave a little bit more color and a little different slant on market general market overview. So listen in here. Time to the U.S. economy. Let's bring in Thomas Hayes. He's founder, chairman, and managing member of Equity Manager, Great Hill Capital. Thomas, what do you make of these numbers? Well, ICA, I think it was kind of a wash. Uh, what we saw was uh, core PCE was up just a hair, but it's still trending towards that 2% inflation target of the Fed. Uh, and the GDP, although it was re revised down one-tenth of 1%, one percent, uh, that was uh, largely due to the private inventory investment being down and offset by government spending and consumer spending. And as we know in the U.S., never underestimate the consumer when they have a job they spend. And if they have a job and they want to spend, what are they spending their money on? Well, it seems like just about everything, Asie. I mean, what we, we're just finishing up Q, the uh, earnings season with 75% of the S&P companies reporting. Uh, we beat across the board 3.2% uh, earnings growth versus 1% earnings growth estimated. If you look at Q1 GDP now from the Atlanta Fed, they're estimating GDP growth in Q1 is uh, going to be around 3% as well. So we continue to fire on all cylinders. We saw Chris Waller today talking about the possibility of three cuts towards the back half of the year, but it's not guaranteed. 
They want to see those inflation numbers come down, and they want to see that tomorrow with core PCE. Sorry, I don't know if you already answered my question, but what are consumers spending their money on? What are they buying? Well, across the board, certainly luxury items have been very, very strong. Uh, travel and experiences, we're going to see the cruise line report earnings, uh, as John Terrett was saying earlier. Uh, you name it, they've been spending uh, apparel. You've seen the Abercrombie and Fitches of the world. So they are, they've got their travel, they've got their goods, and I think we're seeing also a continued move in services, which is why services have remained a little bit sticky and uh, uh, been a little stubborn as it relates to the inflation numbers, I say. And if you are an average American consumer and you are working and you do have an income, are there things you're holding back on in terms of spending? Well, I think the interest rate sensitive larger items have been a little bit slower, but they're starting to come back. Uh, one of the companies we're invested in is Generac. They do home standby generators, and those are often financed because they're a large ticket item. Uh, those have been slower, but they're starting now to reaccelerate with uh, rates uh, appearing that they're going to be coming down towards the end of the year. That has people optimistic. Uh, new car purchases have been good, but they could get a lot better relative to overall demand. If you look at new licensed drivers and the average uh, car age on, a road, on the road, both of those numbers are going up dramatically. So we should see a lot of new car sales. Uh, the lowered rates towards the back half of the year are really going to accelerate that pent-up demand. So they've been holding off on some of those bigger ticket interest rate sensitive items and, of course, new houses with, with uh, limited supply. You know, when was the last time you were at the grocery store? Because I can tell you, every time I go to the grocery store, I am astounded by how much more I'm paying for groceries. I was going to ask you what the big concern for Americans are when it comes to economic issues, and I bet you one of it is inflation and the price of food. Yeah, there's no question in the last few years that the price of food has gone up materially. It's slowing, the, the pace at which it's going up is certainly slowing, but we saw from Walmart earnings, of course, uh, consumers are dialed back a hair on discretionary items, you know, kind of the non-grocery part of their store and focused more on the food because uh, a lot of their discretionary income is currently being eaten up by the higher uh, food prices that you're referring to, particularly um, uh, the non uh, top end of the economic strata that uh, has to be focused on the essentials for the time being. How much of a concern, Thomas, is, uh, is recession still this year? Uh, very low. Uh, very low with this level of employment, with this level of growth. Inflation is coming down. Productivity is gaining. And what we're going to see is that we're actually going to be able to sustain higher rates of growth than expected while inflation falls due to the uh, abnormally high productivity gains that we're starting to see. Some of it's a result of efficiency, some of it's a result of AI and uh, different efficiency measures that companies have put in place. And a lot of it has to do with uh, Asai is, is CEOs were preparing all of last year for a recession that never came. So they got their efficiency in order, they cut costs, and now we still have a booming economy and that's all going to the bottom line. So uh, we're in a pretty good place. The only thing that could potentially impair that outlook would be if the Fed waits too long because there is a lagged effect of such an aggressive 
tightening cycle. And it's, you know, historically, it's between six and 24 months. So we don't know when that's going to kick in. And they need to keep a hawk's eye on that so that when they do see that little sign of slowing, and I think we're, we're seeing it in, in the inflation numbers that they are, the, the sooner they do a cut, the less cuts they'll actually have to do. All right, we'll leave it there. Thomas Hayes, thank you very much. Thank, thank you, Asai. And we're back. I want to thank Asia as well as Camilia Kilowan for having me on last night. And finally, I want to thank Anyana Miriam Rajesh for including me in her article on Reuters. We're going to kick it off with the most important numbers today, which were the uh, core, uh, the PCE price index, which came in line with expectations of 2.4% year-on-year, which is the key inflation indicator that the Fed looks at. And as you can see, ladies and gentlemen, this is going straight down in the perfect direction. So with all of the kind of nerves around inflation being sticky uh, uh, or dramatically delaying the Fed cuts, Rick Reeder, who manages a trillion dollars over at BlackRock and a trillion in fixed income, so he thinks about interest rates every minute of the day, uh, he was just on the claim and countdown talking about May or June for the first cut. Uh, I'll be on the claim and countdown Fox Business on Monday with my friend Kenny Polcari. Uh, you definitely want to tune in for that. Uh, 3 p.m. Fox Business, the claim and countdown. Uh, so this is key, and this is going to get the Fed in gear, whether it's May, whether it's June, and continue that broadening of the market, which we saw aggressively at the end of last year, took a little break in January, came back nicely in February, and is starting to really broaden out. So you could see a situation where indices may be a little bit less aggressive, if not a little pullback, and some of the other names that are just now starting to broaden uh, take the helm, which will not be reflected in the indices, but will be reflected under the surface where you see some very nice gains. Um, moving along, I want to go through the RBC uh, weekly chart book. This is Robert Slumer. Thanks to my buddy over there. You know who you are. So this is the chart that I've been talking about uh, f since the beginning of this year, which I said, you know, don't get too cute here. Everyone wanted to short on January 1st because they figured everyone would be dumping hand over fist uh, to uh, lock in their gains uh, after they delayed taking the gains because of the taxes. And I said, not after a two-year consolidation, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, this is just getting going. And if you think about measured move, we've got a lot more upside. The question is, in the really short term, do we check back to this breakout level? And the answer to that question is we don't know, but we do have 1% of equity capital as a hedge. If it works, that 1% becomes 5% or 5X in a relatively short order for clients. And then we have 5% of found capital we can use to go aggressively long into the year end because we are constructive for the full year. But it gives you a little idea of where we are. Uh, Slumer here is showing that uh, this is, you know, has a rolling over look. The, the weekly momentum is waning. It would be natural to get a touchback here to, you know, I've been talking about 47.50. He's got uh, 48.18 and 46.37. So, uh, you know, call it somewhere in there. The only reason that would make me think it doesn't do this is just because we did that brutal uh, check back at the end of the year where you were kind of coming up against this resistance point, checking back before breaking out. 
but you know, at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter because with new money today, uh, there's plenty of stuff to do. Uh, some of the laggards, some of the natural gas companies, you wouldn't put all of your money to work at, in one day right now, but some of the ones that have not yet participated like natural gas, like a couple of the others, uh, maybe some Cooper Standard, uh, you know, some VF Corp, et cetera, uh, we'd be aggressive. And even if the market pulls back, you know, sometimes you see in those situations where you get the general indices pullback, you get the laggards actually rallying in the face of that. So we don't want to miss the opportunity to buy great companies at great prices. Um, congratulations also to Frank, who came in uh, well above the mini minimum. Welcome. And um, now the Russell small caps are really starting to do what we talked about, and that is breaking out of this range. We think that's going to be a theme also. So you could see the general indices subdued as we get more and more renewed confidence on the inflation numbers and May comes more clearly focused into the picture after numbers like today and prospectively. Um, uh, small caps are, are going to rip and we've got some exposure there in some of the names that we've talked about in recent weeks and months. This is the Hang Sang Weekly. Uh, it's come off that double bottom and is uh, working up here. The real key will be as it breaks above here. We got some interesting thing for our Bobaholics uh, uh, today that we're going to go into in the article of the week, but this looks like it wants to push higher. And as a matter of fact, this is two days old. It may have just pushed above this, which implies 18,343 on the Hang Sang Index. And uh, and I think that's a, a reasonable outlook in the near term before we just start to blast through. Uh, so far, the Chinese government's put up about 57 billion in the last week and a half. UBS did the calculation in terms of directly buying Chinese equities uh, with their state funds. And uh, that could be another 100 billion. So at the end of the day, they said um, no mas. We are going to defend the market. And, um, you know, I think the other aspect, you know, with those uh, those options that we discussed at every level was forcing the market lower. They, you know, arrested a couple short sellers. That's how they do it in China. Uh, that's not new, by the way. They, they just that's what communists do. Uh, they arrest people. And uh, uh, leaving that aside, um, you know, the market's showing some signs of buoyancy and stability, et cetera. So we like that 10 year yield looks like it's starting to roll back over, which is what we want to see. It's up against this resistance bouncing lower. I think today's inflation numbers are modestly helpful and we'll see continued data that points in that direction. I think the January numbers were the aberration as we had uh, covered the non seasonally adjusted numbers. We're showing a completely different picture than what we saw for the January numbers, and that seemed to be uh, beginning to be reflected today. Bonds look like they've uh, come off their counter trend move and are starting to rally again. Yields compress, which is in line with our thesis. The dollar came off the boil, which we had anticipated this was a counter trend move, and uh, and that's been positive, and, and naturally we've seen emerging markets in China get a bid. And then uh, Canadian dollar, uh, you know, I love the loonies, ladies and gentlemen. I've been talking about that. It started to break out of this uh, uh, bottoming process over the last year and a half. I think that's going to have some legs. So the uh, the Canadians are going to be telling us how how it how it is in, in the next uh, couple of years, and I'll I'll have to put back on my uh, Canada hockey jersey from my buddies up there. So um, so that's that. And then uh, some of these other charts. This this copper chart is starting to show us that there's some buoyancy here in. Um, 
in China, this is uh, Dr. Copper has a PhD in economics. When that goes up, it shows the global recovery is in gear. Uh, I'd also keep an eye on energy, which everyone's been bearish of. We start to think that's an interesting opportunity. Here are some sectors relative to the S&P 500. Utilities has been pounded because of rates. Uh, I think that's, that, that's going to represent some opportunities. As a matter of fact, we're going to talk about that in a second. Some staples. Healthcare, we have the exposure through biotech, which is now taking off like a rocket after a year and a half of grinding sideways. We'll talk about that. Materials, energy, all these left for dead. So that's where we want to uh, have some focus. We uh, uh, skate where the puck is going, not where it's already been. And, um, and I think that's pretty much everything we want to cover from this chart book. Uh, and move it forward. So Seth Golden, actually, this is very interesting. He posted this Ned Davis research, and we've talked about the election cycle and the concept of, uh, you know, second year, election year, first year presidential cycle, second year presidential cycle. And we've talked about it in the context of the S&P 500, which is 500. Here, Ned Davis Research puts this out in the concept, context of the Dow Jones Industrials. So the larger, more industrial names actually have their sweetest spot halfway, just a little more um, after half, a little bit before halfway through the election year into halfway through the first presidential year. So all of these kind of big industrial names that have been lagging while the AI names have been flying, after we get potentially a little bit of pullback in, in March and early April, uh, they are gonna be set up to rip roar for a year. And, um, and that, there's a lot of overlap if you think about the 3Ms of the world, if you think about the Generax of the world, if you think about the Stanley Black and Deckers of the world, if you think about even the VF Corps, anything that's really lagged non-AI will catch this, this bid. And uh, that was a really helpful chart from Seth. Uh, this is bullish percent by sector. You can see a lot of these are a little bit uh, you know, up there, uh, namely tech and NASDAQ discretionary. But some of them are down where there's still opportunity. Energy, we, we again only like the natural gas pure plays here. Uh, although a lot of the EMP and integrated have pulled back decently, they haven't pulled enough for us to get excited about it. Uh, financials were really heated. They're probably due for a little pullback. We've had a beautiful run with Citi and Bank of America and some of the others. Um, so I, I'd, I'd expect a little softness there. Gold miners wouldn't touch with a uh, 10-foot pole. Uh, not because they won't work, but because no matter how high, high the price of gold goes, they just consistently find a way to lose money. Uh, healthcare, uh, we're expressed through biotech basket. Uh, Dow's getting a little bit, looks like a little bit uh, frothy here, and that would set up perfectly with this Ned Davis chart where you get this weakness after some early part of the year strength, some weakness, everyone gets out, and that leads to that big uh, uh, rally from mid-election year to mid-first year of the presidential cycle for those big industrials. Um, and then tech was super hot, came off the boil. It, you see a bit with Apple's weakness, Tesla's weakness. You know, Magnificent 7 became the fabulous 4, and that's starting to be reflected. There's probably some more weakness to be had here. 
Uh, materials have been a little bit weak. Uh, NASDAQ's coming off the boil a little bit. So you can see under the surface a little bit of erosion and real estate's been weak. So there, there's some opportunity picking up there. Uh, we're gonna do the earnings early this week. And the reason you'll see why um, George pulled this together, top 30 weights, uh, revisions in the last 60 days, uh, cumulative have been revised up uh, 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 five tenths of, five one hundredths of a percent in the past 60 days. So while their prices have collapsed due to rates having a counter trend bounce or yields having a counter trend bounce, as those yields go back down, these are going to rip. Uh, very similar. Uh, so let's just go through some of the utilities. These are the components of the XLU, the same ones that we used for the compilation here of earnings. And you can see a lot of these have pulled back a lot and are getting near or at oversold levels. Um, and as you look through each chart here, you're gonna just see some of them haven't pulled back enough, but there are some that look like pretty interesting risk reward levels where you wanna to start to do the work. Uh, Dominion's one, I know that's a lower quality, but it's kind of uh, pulled back quite a bit and, you get, and you're locking in a really good yield. So as the treasury yields 5% cash goes away over the next year, year and a half, here you're locking in five, 6% yield with a growing dividend and mass capital appreciation at the same time. So you can have your cake and eat it too, thanks to a GLP near you. Uh, well, there you go. So um, uh, what's next here? Uh, here's uh, Eversource. You know, some of them haven't pulled back enough where the risk reward makes sense given the limited upside, but some have pulled back quite a bit. And if you can get comfortable with their balance sheet, there's some, some opportunity here. Um, PCG was a special situation uh, in California. You know, the risk now is like anytime there's a fire, the state says, oh, it's all the utilities fault. So we're just going to take billions from you to pay for it, which is a little bit silly season. And I don't know that that's going to change anytime soon. So you may want to be skewed toward those utilities that are domiciled in business friendly states versus unfriendly states. Uh, and I'll leave it at that. So REITs, same story. They are rate sensitive. And uh, after we did the quick double in Vornado last year and got out, um, now a lot of them have pulled back. The cumulative earnings power of these top 30 weights was revised down by 1.1%. So it's probably skewed with one or two names. Uh, got a real downgrade. And uh, let's just see here. Uh, let's see which ones. Anyway, and then you can see how much some of these have pulled back. So um, here's American Tower, by the way, that's comparable to our uh, um, Crown Castle. We like Crown Castle due to the activist um, uh, assistance that we're getting. They came in after us, Elliott Management, which was nice. Here's Avalon Bay. These, this is multifamily. There's a lot of supply coming on in different regions. So that one I'd probably pass on, even though it'll likely work. Uh, here's our Crown Castle, bounced off the 83 bottom at 110. This is going to continue to work to new highs over the next couple of years. We like this. Locked it in at lower levels. Beautiful yield, beautiful activist action, beautiful assets, beautiful everything. Um, and then uh, 
So you can see some have come down a lot as you've had that counter trend move, EQR, uh, ESS, and some of them haven't moved down much. But it goes to show where there's always opportunity under the surface, even if you look at the indices and say, oh, you, I missed everything. You got, you know, the, the money is made under the surface, not chasing indices. Um, Mid-America, again, an apartment one. So there's a, now a narrative around apartments. There's going to be too much supply in certain areas, which may in fact be true. Uh, but but they've, they're pricing it in just as Vernado had priced in the apocalypse in New York City, uh, which I think is true for B and C properties. I think it's going to be less true for A properties where they controlled uh, public storage. Uh, and you can just see... Um, a number of opportunities as you go through these. So wanted to cover that. Now, our article of the week is Advance is Advancing Stock Market and Sentiment Results. Advance Auto Parts reported earnings yesterday. Uh, just want to cover this chart again from Ryan Dietrich, which talks about the fourth year of a presidential cycle. Uh, tends to have some seasonal weakness here as we dip into March, into uh, late March and early April. That's your higher risk period. It doesn't mean necessarily we are going to get a uh, correction because remember, a lot of people have been negative for a very long time. So now they're chasing the top. But uh, I think we got quite a few of them in. Most, most of them have either flipped bullish or found new careers. Um, uh, the ones that have been bearish since October of 2022 and October 2023. So this would make sense. Uh, we're fully invested, but we have that nice hedge on to gain some excess capital to get long into year end. We'll see how that works out. A little too easy when everyone's looking for the same pullback, so it probably won't work. But, um, you know, trading at 20 and a half times forward, earnings are growing, earnings are going up, uh, productivity's go going up, which is very nice. But uh, I think, it, <laughs> you know, trees don't go to the sky. You got to take a little breather, consolidate, even though we've been consolidating for two years, maybe a little pullback just to uh, shake out some of that late, late money that have, that it's coming at new highs and then uh, resume the uptrend. Uh, synchronized global easing is headed to a theater near you. You can see here the percentage of central banks tightening, pushed ahead by 12 months and inverted versus the global manufacturing PMIs, which are now turning up. So that for those of you waiting for a recession or those uh, many people who had been waiting for a recession, uh, note to self, you already had it. It just was a manufacturing recession uh, that's lasted for the last year and a half and is just now turning up. So tech and others carried the water while manufacturing worked its way through its process. On November 15th, I was on Fox Business with Charles Payne discussing a turnaround story of 90-year-old advanced auto parts when it was trading in the high 50s. Uh, it's making meaningful, meaningful progress as evidenced in yesterday's earnings results. Uh, so now it's knocking on the door of $70 a share. I don't know where it closed today. But when you can see, yes, this is a monster move in a short period of time. But if you, if you zoom out, um, it, this is just getting started. The turnaround plan is just beginning. And we're going to talk about why as it relates to new management, new initiatives, and new results. But most importantly, new guidance. So if backward looking earnings results were a beat on the top line, but a miss on the bottom line, what caused the stocks to like the report yesterday? Well, what it liked was forward guidance. 
Prior to yesterday's report, FactSet's consensus for 2024 was earnings per share of $3.65 and sales at $11.5 billion. The company is now expecting EPS to range from 3.75 to 4.25, so a big upgrade in the bottom line, uh, top line flattish to down. So the new mid-range is 10% greater than analysts had anticipated, and a top-end beat, which is what managers aim for, would imply a 17% jump above consensus, which is a big deal. Add to that the assertion of generating, quote, a minimum of $250 million of free cash flow this year. The name of the game with any turnaround is free cash flow to give them the runway to implement the changes of new management. You don't get drops from $230 down to $48 if there's not existential risk. And that's when you get new management. That's when you get the huge cost cuts. That's when you get uh, uh, the efficiencies in the business. But the name of the game is the business large and durable enough. And there's something called the Lindy effect where the longer something exists, the higher likelihood it has of existing a longer period in the future. That's not always the case. We can find many examples, but there's something to that when you have 90 years of history or in the case of VF Corp, 122 years of history or Coca-Cola or even IBM or many others. Uh, GE has seen many, many different iterations, even though they described tried to destroy it, they finally got some management in and Larry Culp has turned the whole thing around and the sum of the parts is now looking very, very interesting. Boeing, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, so that's the name of the game. Uh, cash flow to give them the runway to implement the new changes. Shane O'Kelly, the new CEO, came from HD Supply, which was a $7 billion business with Home Depot that he ran. His new CFO was recruited from Lowe's. They know retail, they know distribution and supply chain management for do-it-yourselfers and professionals. That's exactly what HD Supply was. That's exactly what Lowe's was. The skills translate perfectly. So let's go through some of the highlights of the call. There were quite a lot. It was a long call. But I'd rather know more about a company that I own than, than less. So... Um, you know, they talk about profitable growth either, uh, et cetera. Let's get to some of the key things. They did generate uh, $300 million of, th of uh, free cash flow for 2023. Um, excuse me, free cash flow for the year for 2023 was 43.7 million. So this year they're gonna do 250 million. Uh, that was down from the prior year. Obviously, they had a lot of restructuring costs, a lot of severance, a lot of uh, number of factors. Um, but here's here's their new guidance: three seventy five to four twenty five minimum of two hundred fifty million of free cash flow. So that gives them plenty of runway. Not to mention they're going to sell the Canada businesses and get a tremendous amount of cash to delever the balance sheet and invest in uh, the supply chain management, which we're going to talk about. The other thing that is of note here in the balance sheet is that the current portion of their long-term debt is zero and uh, their cash is now up to a half a billion dollars, um, et cetera. So you got a business doing 11, $11 and a half billion dollars of revenue. They'll find a way to pull 
you know, half a billion to a billion dollars of profits out of that over the next few years. And we'll have a very beautiful business and a huge recovery in the stock price. And that's the name of the game. So let, how are they going to do it? Uh, Shane's got five initiatives. One, initiating the sales process for WorldPAC and their Canadian businesses. He implied in the call, which we'll see uh, moving forward, that that's likely going to conclude in Q2. So it sounds like they've already got quite a bit of interest and they're going to get a good price for it. Uh, two, significantly reducing their costs. If you remember, last quarter was the first quarter. His first quarter, he could barely find the coffee machine. Well, guess what? The $150 million that he promised to take out of the business on an annualized business, uh, he waited about five minutes to do that. He got 100% of that done in his first quarter in business. <laughs> so uh, that's the good news. Bad news, obviously, it's sad for 400 team members are no longer part. But uh, he cut the fat from largely from marketing and from home office bureaucracy. And he invested in the front line. Those folks who wear the red golf shirts and know the parts backward and forward and can communicate with the professionals that are calling them with the Chevy, Chevy Suburban on the lift and they need shocks and brakes. And these guys are professionals that know about car parts, can get it to them quickly. And that's, that's their competitive advantage having the right stuff in stock, getting it to the client quickly and doing it at a fair price. And, um, and that's what they're investing in. Um, reducing the cost three, making organizational changes to position us for success. Four, assessing the productivity of our assets, including CarQuest independence. Number five, consolidation of our supply chain, which he's done four other times in his career very successfully. So this is old hat to Shane O'Kelly and also the new CEO from Lowe's. Uh, so first, we initiated separate sales process for WorldPAC and Canada. We are very pleased with the interest we have received on both businesses. WorldPAC process is underway. We are actively engaging with potential buyers. We currently expect to conclude the WorldPAC process during our second quarter and look forward to sharing more information when that occurs. So he's uh, basically saying, implying that it's a done deal. Um, Canadian process is intentionally sequenced behind WorldPAC, so they want to get one done before the next and I guess not make it any type of a package. Significant cost reductions by eliminating the initiatives that did not support our commitment to improve the fundamentals of the business, and we will realize at least 150 million of SG&A savings in 2024. They reinvested 50 million of that 150 in the front line, which they said they were gonna do last quarter. So they retain quality people, and they're not getting you know, folks who worked at CBS that don't know a muffler from a catalytic converter, from a spark plug, from a carburetor. Um, they want specialized people and you got to pay up for that. And when the professionals realize that you have that and the competition doesn't, uh, which is what I've heard when I've talked to, which, you know, it's I'm biased because I go in and do the channel checks, but the Northeast and the West were their two top regions. So I go into the stores and things are booming and I see all the cars in the par parking lot and I talk to the people and they're great. And I talk to guys who run garages and they say that, you know, advanced People are the best. Um, but as I said, when we got into the position, one gentleman I spoke to talked about the last management screwed over the professionals on pricing contracts that they had. So what Shane did was he went back and renewed all of those relationships and things are now humming again on the professional side, which is the core to the business. And the do-it-yourself has been spotty, but that, that they'll bring that back 
because industry fundamentals favor it and they're gonna have the right things in stock at the right time in the right way. Uh, moving along, he also brought in this chief data officer, Kunal Das, who came from Lowe's as well. So uh, he's it's, it's basically like getting the whole band back together. He knows all these guys from his days at HD Supply. He probably competed aggressively against them. And my guess is the fact that he's bringing them on his team tells me he did not like competing against them. So if you can't beat them, join them and uh, bring them on to your new team at Advanced Auto Parts. And that looks like what's, what's happening between the chief data officer and the um and the cfo and if you look at the results of lowe's and uh hd supply and obviously home depot the parent over those years uh they couldn't have been any better so uh here's where he says the west and northeast were our top performing regions so i'm a little biased when i look at the channel checks because uh everything looks good where i am and in uh connecticut in new york and new jersey uh the stores i've been to so um so they'll, they'll pick up on the other regions uh, now, the key drivers of this industry remain strong. These include average age of vehicles, which, by the way, is consistent with our thesis around Cooper Standard, which continues to increase and is now at 12.5 years, It's actually uh, as well as miles driven, both of which are projected to further increase this year. Um, confident advance can begin to capitalize on the strong fundamentals of the industry, et cetera, et cetera. So... Uh, their sales were up 1.2%. That's not bad. In the middle of, you have to consider, remember, everyone overstocked and over inventoried in 2022, and it's taken a number of quarters to get them. So the fact that they could increase sales in the midst of a monster restructuring and turnaround is pretty darn impressive. And um, uh, it, you got something amazing to work with if that's your worst case scenario where you have flat sales and you're still positive free cash flow in the worst year. Uh, and the price is down, you know, some 70%. I mean, it gives you a margin of safety and then free cash flow prospectively to give them the runway. I love, I love business. I love situations like this. This is what I turn around, Tom. What, what can I say? Um, okay. So they reiterated the 250 million in free cash flow for, I'm confident that with our decisive actions and focus team coupled with favorable industry fundamentals, we can return to profitable growth. Advance has been around a proud 90-year legacy and re-energized frontline team and a leadership team committed to delivering powerful comeback. Uh, and that's that. Then Ryan Grimsland is the new CFO from Lowe's. Uh, uh, uh. All right, you can read through this. If we do this, we're gonna be here till tomorrow. Um, a lot of Q&A as analysts are trying to get their heads around the turnaround plan. Uh, and, okay, anything you can point to, maybe quantify to say that some early initiatives are working. Now, this is from Seth Sigmund, an analyst. Early initiatives, the guy, just about knows where to go to find the men's room and to turn on the coffee machine after being there for like a handful of uh, months, uh, less than that. Uh, however, uh, he replied, yes, absolutely. So we saw availability improve. We did see improvement in the pro traction. We're actually seeing good performance in the pro. We're excited at, about that and encourage 
by our inventory availability, which is the name of the game in this business. This, this business is not, it's actually a very disciplined business. So it's not a race to the bottom on prices. It's a, it's a slugfest for how fast can you get the part to the client and how effective are you at making sure the things that sell are on the shelf at all times because if you don't have it, they're making the next call to O'Reilly or AutoZone or, or wherever. So you got to have it. And uh, they want to talk to the advanced people first because the advanced people have the most industry skilled labor, but you got to have the parts. And that's been a problem. And that's now changing with this new management who are masters of supply chain. Um, okay. Our goal as an organization is to be incrementally better, to be incrementally better every day, take care of our customers, look, look after our team members. And I've seen this movie before in other industries, in fact, in my last organization, and that's a recipe for success. And you'll look for that from us and then look for us later this year to provide a perspective on what we might look, what we might look like after a couple of years. So that's from Shane O'Kelly. So he, you know, he says, as far as the supply, they, they have like, two separate distribution setups they're going to con consolidate them and he said he's done it four times before in his career i don't know if we already passed that section or we're going to get to that but uh um the capex is going to go down because they're going to stop expanding stores so fast they're going to make the existing ones profitable which we like to see get that working get the supply chain consolidated and then uh you know get that uh, nationwide distribution network humming with less uh, uh, distribution centers, more regionally uh, centralized, and then you get those efficiencies and you can add stores if you have to. Uh, da, 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 da. Market share, I think that's my uh, they, they did show some confidence about their re retention of market share uh, and how they're going about doing that. And I think as they get through this, they're gonna start to regain share uh, in the next year or two uh, with some of the initiatives. Uh, okay, so this is really interesting. So it's a complete change of culture that Shane is talking about in this Q&A. He talks about um, the cost takeout was broad-based, so no functional area uh, was impacted. If I go back to, an, I think that we had a bit of headquarters-centric approach to running the business, and with that, you end up with... Uh, I believe that we need field first and corporate needs. Corporate needs to be lean. That's his theme. Corporate needs to be everyone who sits in a corporate seat needs to be supporting the field. And so we went across the functional areas. I think notably marketing was an area where there were more significant cuts than any other areas uh, because we invested in marketing programs that didn't have a yield. Even so, we view that cost takedown not only as necessary, but one that didn't dampen our sales. If anything, I think we've gotten the opposite going as we've cleared out some bureaucracy. Um, and as we take the dollars and put it in the front line and reduce turnover and create energy, those team members feel like they're heard and supported in a way that wasn't occurring. Okay, then uh, Scott... Cicerelli asked if there are going to be any more statements. If you recall last year, they had some financial restatements. They were non-material, but no one likes to see that. So first thing you do is you dump and you get a new CFO. You get the uh, credible CFO to come in, look over everything, do a final restatement. 
And um, and uh, so uh, Shane answers the question. Uh, he says that um, the final restatements would be in the 10K, which is out shortly. And so Cicerelli asks him a second time, so no more restatements on results. And Shane replies, none. That's a big deal. So now you've got some stability. You've got a new sheriff in town. You've got a new culture. You've got a new direction. You've got a, a business that's ramping up free cash flow. And you got a business that's cheap with a huge margin of safety. And by the way, doing $11 billion a year in business and a beautiful 90-year legacy of history to work with as they recover and uh, bring in the big boys. So um, this, is, this is the key concept about what I was talking about. Our merchant and sourcing teams are making sure that we're not only getting high quality products, but that we're getting it in the quantities we need. On the pricing front, a couple of things here. One, this is a disciplined industry. And I think that's important, the conduct between the players in terms of how the active customers I describe is rational, but customer feedback is an important dimension. I would say we need to be in the zip code of the customer's needs on price, but availability is important as is speed to service. And that's something we're focused on. So what he's basically saying, if we have the parts in and we can deliver them fast, they don't really care about the price. Why? Because time is money. If you have a car up on a lift, you know, every hour that 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 dock is used that, that you can't get a new car in costs you time and money, time and labor, time and can't get another car on the lift and just dead time for the garage. So if you have what they need all the time and you get it to them quickly and they can get that car off the lift, they make more money. So they don't care about paying five more dollars for the spark plug if they can get it in in five minutes versus five hours. And that's what they're talking about here. So the margins as they get their inventory right through the data guide, through the distribution consolidation, through uh, frontline workers that can communicate what they need and when based on the different regions and the professionals that they cater to, uh, the, the price is not going to be an issue. And that's what we love is a nice high margin business, which they also have some really high quality private label. They also control the diehard battery brand. So a lot of, lot of good things in place. I think that's important conduct between the players in terms of how the active customer, okay. Um, if you're a pro and you've got a car on a lift, you've got a Chevy Tahoe that needs brake rotors, we've got to get them to you expeditiously. So we're focused on that speed of service, which is something we measure as it relates to price will be where the market sort of demands. He's basically saying we have, we have decent pricing power so long as we redevelop a reputation for having what people need and getting it to them quickly, particularly on the professional side. Biotech bouncing, I don't wanna spend a lot of time on this because we've spent a lot of time over the last year and a half or so, but I will say we're finally breaking out of this base. Uh, we've been consolidating sideways uh, for a long time. We thought we were a genius in 2022 when we got bullish on a basket of biotech after the washout. You can listen on, on Clayman. And after a quick rebound off the lows, it grinded sideways for a year before testing our metal and going, quote, back to the future and revisiting the 2022 lows again. However, nothing in our original thesis covered on our podcast videocast changed. Deals and drugs. So neither did our positioning other than adding a bit on weakness. So now it's off to the races as the Fed nears stepping out of the way. More breakthrough drugs are being approved and utilized. And most importantly, M&A is heating up 
Pharma is using their record cash to buy growth and innovation, which we covered since day one. Our thesis has never changed. And what you see after these long periods of consolidation is uh, huge breakouts and multi-year follow-throughs, huge breakout, multi-year follow-through, huge breakout, multi-year follow-through. And we just broke out of this two-year consolidation and the game is just beginning. Now for all my fellow Baba-holics, uh, I thought this, this chart from Arun Chopra CFA was good. Arun is known as kind of like a sarcastic comedian on the internet. Um, uh, but he posted these two charts and it said they never want them in the bases. So he pointed to NVIDIA when no one wanted it in 2024. And you can see a reverse head and shoulders, shoulder, head, shoulder. Uh, did the measured move right to here and then it did a continuation pattern beyond that and uh and that's been and the same thing with bitcoin for all the crypto folks that are not listening to this podcast uh head shoulder head uh and and beyond and um uh so that's that and uh they never want to buy them in the bases a eh? well here's alibaba's base shoulder head shoulder and then you got uh basically a four bagger or 300% over the next couple of years. We had a sideways consolidation again in 2018 to 20, and then now shoulder head shoulder, and we're now starting to work our way higher. And as you can see, once these things get going, they go straight up and it, it feels like on a day-to-day -day basis, it's uh, pun intended Chinese water torture, but uh, as it goes, it will be very, very pleasurable. Uh, interestingly enough, Joe Tsai was on CNBC this week and the headline was, after doubts about Alibaba's future, co-founder Joe Tsai says, quote, unquote, we're back. So that's uh, a good thing to see. There was a headline today about them cutting the cost of their cloud services again. Um, what people don't understand or some people don't understand is that's the name of the game. They're number one share uh, in Asia, in China. And what they're doing is defending their share, number one. But number two, as AI proliferates, the compute demand and the cloud demand is exponential. You can't even measure the amount of demand. So even if they cut their prices 90% uh, over the next five years, they're probably the demand for what they offer is probably going to be 20x uh, what they're offering now. So when you cut your prices 20% or 30% or 50%, but you have 20x more volume because people are willing to pay those prices and the demand is is beyond what anyone can actually even deliver. Um, that's how you build a business. And as a matter of fact, I'm going to quickly answer a um, ask me anything question right now and just keep it short because uh, it tells you everything you know. Uh, Greg Olmsted asked why Baba over PD PDD, and you know he's talking about recency bias at you know. Timu had a few good quarters. We covered that last week. Number one, I think it's the next wish.com. You can't keep selling stuff, garbage that has no real value at a loss uh, in perpetuity. Uh, and if you want a case study on how that works, just go to wish.com. And number two, the key reason we got in Baba when we had a Chinese and emerging market thesis to start with was that we had a lot of outs. Number one, it had to be the highest quality business. Um, we weren't willing to take country and company risk. The country risk was great enough without taking company risk. And what that mean, meant in terms of company risk, we were basically narrowed down to two companies, which were Tencent and Alibaba. And we chose Alibaba because we were concerned about the online gaming business after seeing what happened to the 
online education business <coughs> by the government. And what we knew was the government would need uh, the cloud business to grow. And we predominantly bought Alibaba. Number one, they have adorable uh, entrenched mindshare with their high quality or higher end retail, not selling as much garbage at a loss as Timu is. Uh, but most importantly, the future was going to be the cloud pro proliferation. They're still five years behind the U.S. in terms of business dig digitization. And now you uh, uh, layer on top of that uh, demand that will never be able to met, be met, exponential demand. Uh, so the best thing they can do as the lead player is lower prices quickly, destroy all their emerging competitors, and then just field all of the demand. Like Buffett says, when it rains gold, put out a bucket, not a thimble. And that's what Alibaba is going to do in the cloud. And that's the core reason we ever entered the position to start with. So yeah, it's been slow the last two years. And yeah, they lost TikTok and they complained about TikTok every quarter. But this is a whole new regime and they will have the most advanced and do have the most advanced available generative AI platform, US chips or non-US chips moving prospectively. The key is it's not, do they have uh, um, GPU chips from NVIDIA? The question is, do they have the best chips available in China for the Chinese market where they are the leader? And if the answer is yes, uh, which it is, they will get what is going to be one of the fastest growing businesses in the shortest period of time in history in generative AI. For everyone playing NVIDIA, for everyone playing AMD, for everyone playing uh, Amazon uh, or Microsoft as it relates to AI, I think Alibaba is one of the best AI plays in the world. No one sees it yet, but they will see it soon enough. And that's when we will see uh, this little thing hockey stick straight up and everyone will say what happened and then you get all the people entering nvidia at 685 dollars super more excited than you could imagine and no one wanted it at 40 dollars. so that's just the way it works it'll never change and that's what keeps us in business and uh and attracting incredible partners and growing over many years together so um bullish percent uh in retail investors are getting a little giddy the bullishness is up to 46 percent, but more importantly the bearishness is at 21%, which is like record low type of levels. In other words, they see no fear. And that's usually when you get a pullback to kick them in the teeth. And uh, that's just the way the market works. Um, uh, active investment managers uh, came in a little bit to 75% equity exposure and fear and greed is at extreme greed. So, you know, things are pointing toward, we should get a little pullback, uh, but we'll see. Okay, and that's indices indices wide. I can tell you on a company by company basis, a lot of companies have just bottomed and are just starting to take off. Uh, they're not going to be as impacted by large cap tech, which is the highest weight in the S&P pulling back a hair. Uh, that's that's not a core issue. Uh, earnings continue to go up. So that's why we remain bullish. But the key is, what do you pay for those earnings? And right now you're paying 20 and a half times forward earnings, which is a big number. Uh, some of the key economic data, we covered the inflation. That's really the only one that matters as far as I'm concerned. Continuing jobless claims were a little high. Initial jobless claims were a little high. And those type of numbers, uh, along with the core PCE, which we covered, uh, or the PCE price index, point to, um, point to uh, a possibility of a Fed you know, moving earlier. And as I said, uh, to... ASEA, 
on C CGTN, the sooner they make their first cut, the less cuts they will have to do. I could see a scenario, I don't think it will happen, but I could see a scenario where they cut in March and they only have to do two cuts and that's it. And it would be like 1995 mid-cycle and you get five more years of monster run. Um, my guess is they probably wait too long to May or June. And then rather than two, they have to wind up doing four uh, which will be okay. They'll catch it in the nick of time. But it is going to look political, by the way, going into November when they're cutting three times. Uh, but that's their problem, not our problem. Uh, all right, on to the questions of the week. Patrick Kungle asks, thanks for sharing your time and wisdom. I'm so I signed up for the trade service. Thank you very much. Um, and uh, sharing with my friends, that is most appreciated. By the way, if you... Uh, uh, can't afford to become a client and you get value from this every week and you've made money and you're learning stuff, uh, best compliment you can pay, just share it with one or two friends that you think could really benefit as well. That's the number one way we keep growing. And uh, I'm, I'm always appreciative of that. Um, okay, question on option strategy. In terms of days to expiration, how many months until exp expiry would you consider the sweet spot as far as value goes? Um, Okay, so here's the general rule of thumb, Patrick. Uh, when you are going long an equity, high quality business, the longest premium you can buy is usually better. If you are selling, if you're buying premium, you want it as long dated as possible. If you are selling premium, you want it, you know, within 30 days where you get the maximum theta decay. So I'll leave it at that. Lana Alexinko, uh, good day. Question about Latin America. Do you see the growth potential? What is your opinion on uh, NU, Melly, and Stone Co.? Thank you for your show and analysis. Very helpful, Lana. Um, three, three companies in one question. I mean, um, that's a lot, but let's just look at a couple of here. I, I, I do want to have exposure to Brazil in some way at some point, um, but um, you know, we've talked about a number of names, I think PAGS and Stone Co. And we've kind of given a nod to a bunch of them over the last year. Uh, I think we're, you know, like um, this business continues to grow Mercado Libre, that's kind of the Amazon of South America. You know, I just, you know, if you've been with me long enough, you know I don't buy things up. So um, while we own Amazon and Google, we bought them at the October 2022 lows. And then um, for new clients in March of 2023, when they came back and nearly retested the October lows, we, we put some more money to work. But we, you know, this will probably work higher. This is what we call a hold and we'll probably hold them for a long time, but we wouldn't put new money to work in a name like this at this time. Um, that's just our style. Uh, this thing's already moved and Stone Co. So let's take a look at Stone Co. Um, if I recall, this one had a little bit of balance sheet risk. Okay, revenues are growing, cash flow is reaccelerating, gross margins got smashed two years ago and uh, look like they might be recovering. Balance sheet looks okay. Uh, let's look at um, 
Okay, so what they do is financial technology, software solutions, uh, electronic commerce. Yeah, I think there was some accounting issue on this that we walked through like a year and a half ago that um, seems like they might be working through. Let's just take a look at some of the financials in a little bit more detail. Uh, financials. Okay. All right, so they're consistently growing revenues. Operating income is good. Earnings just turning positive. Let's take a look at the balance sheet. So you got a billion dollars of cash, 300 current debt, long-term debt is half a billion. So that looks okay to me. And then cash flow, operating cash flow is stabilizing and, and growing. Uh, free cash flow is So it dipped last year. It looks like it's recovering this year. It had been negative for a few years. So I think you got something here, uh, Lana. This one warrants uh, aggressive continued research. So I would go through the last eight conference calls. I'd go read the two annual reports. I'd go find the bear theses. I'd go look at their competitors. What is their moat? Do they have one? Um, let's talk about their, let's take a look at their margins. Are they... So their margins, are they accelerating or decelerating? They're kind of flattish, so that's not bad. Um, so I think this one is definitely worth, worth a look. It looks like it's turning the corner, and I think you might have something here. So good work, Lana. Thanks for sharing that with the Hedge Fund Tips with Tom Hayes community and family. Uh, Kevin Martin, love the podcast and blog, Tom. Awesome stuff. I've been sharing your podcast with friends for nearly two years now. Thank you so much. I uh, found an absolute gem, which is GTN. It's their mini, mini monopoly is well positioned to provide cheap distribution, for TV shows and movies, uh, low risk way, blah, blah, blah. Plus it's cheap as F. Okay, uh, 588 market cap, monopoly, 3.5 billion in revenue, low quality business at the moment, but that's temporary. Uh, I don't know that it's a low quality business, it's temporary, it's a low quality business, period, but the problem, and we've covered this one like five times uh, on the podcast, it's definitely cheap, but it's cheap for a reason. So I'm going to give you a hint, and I can't go into a lot of this, because I. but um, look who owns the company, and directly and indirectly, and then you will understand why the stock is depressed at the moment. I do think there will be a catalyst for that in the intermediate term, but until that catalyst plays out, you are going to have a depressed stock irrespective of the performance of the business. So um, on paper, not doing that level of in-depth analysis, um, we would look at this, and despite it being a regional television network business, which is a garbage business generally, uh, I know you have the, the view that you're going to have AI content and it's going to be great. Uh, unless it all goes over the top, then you have nothing. Um, uh, I like the thesis, if they can make money, they should make money this year because you have the um, 
you have the uh, elections. That's when these these companies make money. Um, and you know, to your point, uh, you know, revenues have kind of fallen off here. Their gross margins have have collapsed, uh, and their free cash flow is declining along alongside with the price. So you have to have some clear thesis on what is going to turn around these trends to the negative back to the positive. What's the turnaround story? And also, as a hint to you, go figure out the ownership structure so you can have an idea when there actually may be a catalyst. That said, um, knowing what you know, it looks like a good opportunity. Knowing what I know, uh, the jury is still out, but uh, you may wind up being correct. So I don't want to discourage you. I want to encourage you to do more work. But I think your framework as to how you got here is solid. And let's just take a look at the balance sheet because usually these things are levered to the gill. Uh, 21 million in cash and um, Six hundred fifteen, six billion dollars of debt. Is that correct? Six billion dollars of debt. If that is correct, that they have twenty million dollars of cash and six billion dollars of debt. This is not cheap as f. This is actually very expensive, and it should be a donut hole. Uh, I don't think it's going to go in that direction. But you really want to understand uh, what. Is going on and do they have enough free cash flow to live another day it looks like they do uh, but you got to do some solvency analysis on that and you got to understand the business I understand the mini monopoly thesis they had the same thesis with Gannett which turned out to be a train wreck the local newspapers uh, I think that I play it for a trade the other thing you want to look at is the quality of management. I mean, that's the key thesis in our VF Corp turnaround, in our advanced auto parts turnaround, to a lesser extent in our Cooper Standard turnaround. Uh, I trust management because they've respected equity uh, so far. Um, uh, and quite, quite a lot of the businesses actually we're in. I'm just trying to uh, PayPal turnaround. So you can see a theme in how I pick turnarounds is the management. And what you'll see is same leadership, same results. There's been no leadership change in this or in other businesses that they've been involved in. So just put that in the back of your head, uh, doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results um, might not be worth anything more than a trade if that. Christian Kaufman, uh, would you expound how you estimate fair value when you consider a basket like biotech or small banks last year? Learned a lot from listening in the past year. Thanks for your show. Um, well, in terms of biotech, we would look at the metrics across the basket in terms of how it's traded in price to sales, liquidation value, uh, earnings power, et cetera, over the entire basket relative to history. Similarly with regional banks, uh, but basically you're looking for a completely dislocated sector that you know you have no edge in picking the winners but you want exposure because the sector is so beaten down and there's bankruptcy risk for a number of them, 
that you don't want to be in discrete securities. You want to be in a basket knowing that some will be bought out in double and some will go bankrupt and go to zero. But on balance, it's so beaten down that you're going to wind up with a double over the next you know, couple of two, three years just buying the index. Uh, yes, maybe you would have gotten a few three or four or five baggers, you know, if you got lucky and picked the right security that had a drug approval or a takeout, uh, or or in the case of the regional banks, uh, similarly. But if you buy the basket beaten down enough, you have that protection, that safety, and uh, meaningful upside that outperforms your expected IRR hurdle. And that's how we think about it, Christian. Good question, Tim Franks. Uh, could you please let me know what you think about this REIT stock RMR? All right, let's have a look-see-loo. RMR. Okay, let's see what they do. For me, REITs are very tricky because I'm not a real estate guy and unless I know the buildings, I don't feel comfortable doing them. Um, so they basically had zero revenue growth for uh, you know the 10 years that we're looking at here. That's never a good sign for, for any business. Um, Cash flow has also been flat. So the whole thing's been flat. Um, what's the balance sheet look like? These are usually very leveraged. Yeah, it's printing pretty static. Let's just make sure the debt hasn't grown too much. Long-term debt zero. What kind of business is this? Let me see. Uh, snapshot description. Right, asset management services in the United States, management services to four publicly traded real estate investment trusts, three real estate operating companies, private capital vehicles, also provides advisory services, publicly traded mortgage, real estate investment trust. Um, this is a complex business that is not growing. So for me, it would be a pass. Um, let me just take a look here. <sighs> it's I, I think I think it may be a consulting business based on what they're explaining here. Um, but what concerns me is these lumpy revenues that you know. I guess they were growing into 2018, then they halved into COVID. Now they're anemically growing out of the COVID lows. Ah. You you know, you really have to do a lot of work on this one to understand what business are they in and what edge do they have because um, I think it's going to be harder to understand than you think just looking at the financial numbers and meaning their business might be lumpy. They might have client concentration. So you're going to have to do a lot of work. I understand that the prices come down, but the business hasn't really changed. Um, you know, just looking at the chart, it kind of looks interesting, but that's not how I look at <laughs> not how I buy companies. 
So uh, Tim, uh, you're gonna have to do a lot of work to understand this business because it's not simply looking at the assets and the yield. It's uh, It seems like they're just, it's a management service, or management service for four publicly real estate. Advisory services. It looks like they're in a few different businesses. I don't like non-pure plays like that because you never get a decent multiple. Robert Mick, uh, what do you think about stock ticker symbol CNXC seems really undervalued? CNXC. Well, the stock price has come down. Let's see if it deserves to. CNXC. CNXC. Technology infused customer experience solutions. And back end of it. Okay, so this is a tech play that you have to really understand what is their competitive advantage and is it going away? And that takes an awful lot of research. Let's just take a look at the financials to see if it warrants doing any research first. Um, yeah, revenues continue to grow. Earnings are declining for the last five years. Uh, let's see. Tell you one thing that's not declining is total stock-based compensation. They're giving it out like candy. 62 million last year. Nice work if you can get it. Um, let's look at the free cash flow. Been pretty flat for the last three or four years, but doing fine. That's good. Uh, let's look at the income statements. Fine. Balance sheet is looking. $5 billion of debt, 300 million of cash. That's interesting. Why do they need so much debt for this type of business? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that this one warrants some work. Um, so I like your framework, Robert, but now the work begins. You really have to understand what's their competitive moat. Why is it collapsed? What's the bear's thesis? Do they, do they really have anything special here or is it just a me too software that had a run and is now toast? Um, but if you can figure out the answer to those questions by doing long extensive research, you may have something because the financials generally look okay. Um, you know, there's just a lot of big fancy words in the description and when they do all that and you can't really understand what they do, I'm always a little suspicious. So, or it goes in my too hard box. Rich C, uh, great work on CPS. As you point out, the stock is incredibly cheap on a nearly every measure. In listening to analyst calls, it seems like the current debt structure are the main factor holding the stock back. Um, company will be paying roughly 65 cents picking cash combined on every dollar of EBITDA. Uh, the debt become callable. How do you see foresee the debt being restructured? Well, they're going to refinance. I mean, they're going to generate decent free cash flow in 2024. Uh, they are going to refinance that portion that they're able to in 2020, first quarter of 2025. Um, they were asked, uh, okay, I realize conditions, uh, organization, equity raise frees up 200 million of untapped 
uh, some dilution. Appreciate your take. Uh, I don't foresee them doing an equity raise. Um, number one, you can see their history of respecting equity for many years. The share count's actually lower than it was. They did give a bunch of share, shares to management in the last couple of weeks, which we covered last week, but um, still the share count's meaningfully, fully diluted, meaningfully below uh, 2018 levels when they did seven bucks a share. Uh, and that's a good thing to retain them. And most importantly, uh, I'm now more of a partner with the CEO than I was when I bought the company, uh, bought the company, bought a material uh, ownership in the company in May of 2022, uh, which makes me comfortable that his inclination is lower to raise equity capital because he would be hurting himself as much as he's hurting me. Uh, and they are going to uh, uh, utilize those 400 plus million dollars of annualized costs as the volumes tick up, I think to the tune of 4 million more than the IHS is estimating, that's all gonna drop to the bottom line. I think based on my back of the napkin analysis uh, and where I think contracts could be kicking in, uh, I think that over the next two years, they probably have 150 million of adjusted EBITDA that's not in current guidance. Uh, on the basis of contracts kicking in, volumes kicking up, uh, et cetera. And in that environment, uh, or even half of that environment, there's no need to raise equity capital. And if they do raise equity capital, my, my guess is it'll be well above $30 uh, per share. But I, I again, uh, I think that's plan F. It's not plan A, B, or C. Uh, and that's not something that is at the forefront of uh, our thought process at the moment or management's for that matter, as far as I can tell. Uh, Don asked, been a loyal listener for around two years now and have my son who's 29 along with his buddies tuning in each week. Well, thank you. I'm glad glad that uh, that's, it, it's uh, providing value for you. Notice you'd like to bring attention when there's insider buying on a stock. VF Corp most recently, it seems logical that this would be a positive indicator due to access to information. Was just wondering how important of an indicator is this action in the evaluation process of a company? Great analysis and look forward to listening every week along with investing alongside uh, hedge fund tips. It's worked out well done. Um, I take note when management pulls out their checkbook and writes a check for stock at the same price that I'm able to go into the market and buy that stock as well. I do understand there's some chicanery. Sometimes they just buy a token amount to give the appearance that they have confidence to try to uh, steady the ship. But when you see repeated buying, buying has much more signal than noise. Selling uh, has a lot more noise than signal. There's no real good indication from selling. People sell for a uh, a multitude of reasons, but they usually only buy for one, and that is they expect the stock to go up. So it's it's noted in our analysis, but doesn't really play a key, a pivotal role in our analysis. So I'll leave it at that. Uh, so with that said, we'll be back next week, same time, same place. In the meantime, uh, make it a great one, and uh, here's some two more picks with my dad from 95 uh, when I graduated high school and uh, 98 when we were on a trip.